Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to The Router. Today, we'll try to explain a security threat that feels like it's getting more powerful by the day. Also, looking for something to inspire little ones how to code, or maybe just get them out of your hair for a few hours? I'm Jason, and along with my co-host, John, we'll get into these topics here today on The Router. All right, John, how uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right, Jason. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. So first, I want to start out with asking you, uh, last week, uh, we ended the episode by asking you know, what we were going to try to work on over the week, and you said that you were going to get into some cable management work. I did. I did say I was going to do that. It did not go so great. Um, <laughs> what I decided was that Instead of arranging the cables as they need to be arranged, as I think you know, I decided to go in a little bit of a different direction with my home networking setup. So now that I have (laughs) those pieces, uh, and really it's just the one piece, uh, when I install the PCI card for for the hard drives into my main computer, then I'm going to arrange all the cables. So it did not go well, but I have a plan. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it may or may not work out. Uh, I'm aware that you may have done some studying. How did that go for you? (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Um, I did do some studying. Not as much as I would have liked. The the goal, uh, so part of this course that I'm taking, there's five books to work through. Each book is basically 150 to 200 pages of slide per page. And the goal was to get through one book. And I think I got through 20 pages (laughs) because, and I knew this about myself. Whenever I, whenever I try to learn something, I constantly want to like tangent and Hey, this led to that. This led to this. So I only read about 25 pages um, of the one textbook. However, uh, I watched probably over an hour and a half of YouTube videos on how to construct IP packets and deconstruct them and really? what pieces go where. Yeah, and it was actually incredibly interesting and really made a very complicated uh, topic more intuitive. Yeah, digestible maybe. Yeah. I definitely think we're going to talk about that at some point. Packets and frames and datagrams are an interesting topic. It's how our internet works. And uh, I definitely want to talk about it. And I may, just to tease this, have a pretty interesting guest to talk about it too. Oh, I am excited to hear about that. We are here today to discuss two different topics. So you want to get into it? Absolutely. Awesome. So the first topic here has to do with DDoS attacks. And do you, John, want to uh, maybe define a DDoS attack for our listeners? Sure, sure. Um, So I am going to read off a a dictionary-ish definition of it, and then I'll talk about what it means a little bit more in, in realistic terms. So a distributed denial of service attack is a malicious attempt to disrupt normal traffic of a targeted server, service, or network 
by overwhelming the target or its surrounding infrastructure with a flood of internet traffic. So that sentence is pretty self-explanatory, but basically what it's saying is that when a malicious actor is trying to disrupt an internet service, whether that internet service is a streaming website, whether it's an online shopping website, whether it's an online database, really any system that's linked to the internet, uh, a distributed denial of service attack is a way to take that service effectively down and make it inaccessible to the people who are intending to access that server. The point that I think we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about distributed denial of service attacks. So distributed denial refers to a malicious actor taking advantage of a multiple number of computer systems in order to attack a single computer system. That's kind of what makes it so dangerous is that they're able to amplify their attack much more than any one single computer server could attack any other computer server with. Uh, to, to put a little bit of an analogy around it, I came up with this. Denial of service would be, you know, calling somebody's cell phone and not letting them be able to do anything other than either pick up your call or ignore your call. And if you ignore it, uh, you just call it right back. So, so constantly that phone is ringing and the user, the target, if you will, the victim is unable to do anything with their phone other than interact with you, the threat agent in this scenario, calling constantly that phone. And then to compound the problem, you have a dis distributed denial of service attack, which to take our analogy, the correction there that a user could take would be, okay, I'll just block Jason from calling my phone and then I don't have to worry about seeing that number. But if I get a distributed denial of service, I've gotten everybody in my neighborhood to all call you, right? So now you're not just getting calls from Jason, you're getting calls from you know, Susan down the street and Mary across, across the way from me and my next door neighbor, Eric, and whomever else. So that the victim now has to try and block all of those numbers, which on a small scale might be very doable. Um, however, <laughs> these attacks that we're going to talk about here, you have thousands or hundreds and thousands of computers all making these requests and creating this traffic. You're not possibly going to be able to block all of them. Sure, sure. And I, and I think a big part of that is the targets of these distributed denial of service attacks are not your grandmother's Facebook, you know, they're not your, your personal no. web servers. These are, these are web servers that are providing a business that are selling services. And by having these denials of, of service attacks take place, they're effectively cutting off their ability to service those customers. So there's not only a disruption to the company attempting to run these servers, there's a disruption to the people attempting to use the services that they're running. Sounds like you agree with my analogy, at least at least somewhat. I agree. I think you're right on you're right on point. I can't tell you how many uh, little ideas I came up with sketching down. Like, oh, maybe maybe <laughs> this is an analogy, and then I get to a point where I was like, oh, it's kind of dumb. Nobody's gonna like that. <laughs> All right, so let's move ahead. So in the article, it talks about one of the the first real DDoS attacks that uh, is memorable, and it took place in February 2000, and it was a 15-year-old who was able to bring down the likes of Yahoo and Amazon, CNN, 
and he did it with a couple hundred megabits per second of bandwidth. So not not very much uh, compared to uh, today's attacks, which we'll get in in a second. So the interesting part uh, about the story is is the name uh, Michael Kals of uh, Canada, but uh, the Wikipedia page is called Mafia Boy, which I think was his hacker name online. Uh, he took a lot of credit for these attacks. The anecdote I, re- I very much like was that he started <laughs> the attack sort of accidentally before going to school. And then while he was at school, his computer shut down, restarted. He came home and had no idea what had happened until he started watching the news and was able to put the pieces back together to say, hey, I I think that might have been what I did. That's incredible. Just in general, the fact that he did this with a couple hundred megabits per second, that is a good internet connection now. But it's also like kind of standard, you know, gigabit is is common in a lot of areas, uh, which would be a thousand megabits per second. So generally, a lot of people have faster internet connections than this this young man was able to put together in order to take down several high-profile websites. So this is in, in 2000. The dot-com boom was in full swing. These were mega companies that he took down. Even at that point, they were, they were mega companies. Yahoo was a multi-billion dollar company already at that point. Yeah. And he took it down while he was at high school. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So the second thing is that I am actually familiar with the file sharing platform that he used. Uh, Before before this even happened, I don't think I heard about this when it happened. Um, I would have been I would have been graduating high school around this time, and I so I was familiar with Hotline, and Hotline was was a file sharing program, but it was not like like LimeWire or or Wireshark or Kazaa or Napster or anything like that. Hotline, you set up servers, and people were able to navigate to your server and join your server, and they would be able you could chat with people that joined your server, and you would say, hey, what kind of music do you have? And they would say, I have this. And they'd say, well, I'll give you this if you, if you share that with me. Um, so there was, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of, beyond just peer-to-peer, there was actually a social aspect to Hotline, which may have facilitated uh, social engineering on the, on the part of other people that he associated with on Hotline. So he says at one point here that he was not aware of what happened. And that very likely may be true. Someone, he may have given access to his Hotline server and someone put a malicious payload on there that gave them control of his computer that he didn't know about. That That's completely, from what I, from what I remember of Hotline, that is exactly how it worked. Um, but it's interesting because I don't think I would have ever have thought of Hotline again had I not just read this article. Yeah, good blast from the past. Yeah. Uh, even even bringing up uh, Kazaa and LimeWire and, and all those other things, which I think a lot more people who are listening to this are going to be familiar with. Absolutely, absolutely. You, you brought up another key term that I just quickly want to touch on, this idea of social engineering. I, I heard this great anecdote one time of uh, a, a gentleman who wanted to join a hacking group and the way they told him that he could join was that he had to get the credentials for the server and that nobody in the hacking group was able to do it so they doubted he could do it and a week later he 
got back on the chat, maybe using hotline, I don't know, <laughs> and was able to provide the credentials to the server. And they asked him how he got it. And he said, I called him. Yeah. <laughs> and put on a put on a ruse <laughs> that mm-hmm. he needed those credentials and they gave it to him. And so that that is sort of social engineering in a very brief nutshell. And I want to touch on that in, the, in a future episode. Let's uh, let's talk about the thing that was most interesting to me in this article was the scaling, how how quickly we've evolved in the last 20 years uh, to these DDoS attacks being what they were in February 2000, uh, a couple of hundred megabits per second uh, to what they are now. In the article, it talks about uh, the 2000 attacks by Mafia Boy uh, being hundred of megabits per second. Uh, and then fast forward to 2013, uh, stories of DDoS attacks that were th- that were 300 gigabits per second. To put it into terms that might make a little bit more sense, if you're streaming from Netflix, uh, 4K quality is generally about 25 megabits per second. So right now in 2020, to watch 4K content from Netflix, it takes about 25 megabits per, megabits per second. This young man in 2000 was able to command a couple hundred megabits per second. And now we have attacks that are going in the millions of megabits per second. Just to give you an idea of the scale that's involved. Yeah, 2013, uh, 300 gigabits per second. 2016, uh, we've, we see it almost nearly quadruple uh, to 1.1 terabits per second. I know we're throwing a lot of numbers out right now, but the idea is to show that this is this is growing at a very rapid rate. And then in 2018, uh, 1.7 terabits per second. So an incredible amount of data if it were to swarm a single service on the Internet uh, that they would have to try to compete with to, to, to manage. So that leads us to 2020. Uh, when AWS, uh, Amazon's web services, documented and disclosed a 2.3 terabits per second attack. So just a massive amount of data. And to compare it to the 2000 DDoS attack executed by Mafia Boy, which was hundreds of megabits per second, this is quite a significant amount of bits larger. So in 20 years... That's how far we've come. It's scary to think about where we're going to go in the next 20 years. Part of the reason why that's so scary, uh, just in general, is that this was in February of 2000. This 15-year-old used basically this approach to take down several major sites. In 2020, they're still using this same general approach. It's still effective. The scaling has obviously gone up immensely, and these attacks are much, much stronger than they ever were before. I mean, this is the equivalent of a high school fight in the in the in the parking lot at three o'clock by the flagpole versus Mike Tyson boxing, you know, in a professional boxing match and just decimating. That these these attacks are still viable, and that's one of the things that I think is most interesting about these attacks is that these haven't been mitigated the they've been mitigated there's there's services like Cloudflare, Cloudflare, and akamai that attempt to mitigate the, the the effects from these ddos attacks but they can't stop them yeah and 
one of the reasons why they are getting so much more powerful is because of the way they are able to leverage other equipment and services online. And, and that was the last little part of this article, which was the amount of resources that an attacker can leverage because so many things are connected to the internet. It's crazy to think about where we'll be in 20 years because as we all know, uh, IOT devices or internet of things devices uh, are coming. Absolutely, I, I, I do, um, I wanna go into a, just a tiny little bit in a, in a very related note to what you just said. So the internet of things is absolutely a, uh, a factor that's making these sorts of attacks more viable and making them more dangerous. I really appreciate though, and not from the fact that they do it, but just the concept of it, that there is a, there's another type of amplification that I wanna talk about that's called NTP amplification. Network time protocol amplification attack. And what that does is that your, your system, your compromised system, or whether it's your own personal system, would start the attack by spoofing its IP address to the eventual target of your denial of service attack. So you take the IP address of the server that you want to take down and you want to, to block the access to for these customers. An NTP attack involves spoofing your address to make it look like you're that server and sending requests to other servers on the internet for a record of their logs. So that's not normally something that a server would reply to, but these network time protocol attacks are attacks on servers that provide the time. And that's a hugely important thing across the internet is for servers to know what time it is. So this request goes to this network time server. That network time server responds back to the victim server, not to your computer, to the victim server, with the last 600 interactions it had with other servers asking for the time. So you send one message to one server asking for its logs, and an unpatched network time server will send back 600 different responses to your target server. Uh, and that's the amplification of the attack. And it's just, it's interesting because it's a very, it's a critical service that there are hundreds of these network time servers online that their only job is to provide time to other servers. And they were able to figure out a way to use that as a weapon. Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. Uh, I think this is a good time to take a break and come back and talk about Scratch. All right, so we're back, and the next topic I want to talk about is something a little bit different. It's not a headline grabber. Uh, it's a, it's more, a little bit more personal uh, of a topic, uh, but it has to do with scratch. And if you're scratching your head and wondering what I'm talking about, well, let me explain. <laughs> I was introduced to a, a programming uh, thing, if you will, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, called Scratch. And 
the idea is that it's pictures and it's blocks and it's puzzle pieces uh, to help kids learn how to program. That's its intent. Is it's a it's a coding practice tool to teach kids how to code, and it goes through the logic of go left, go right, click a button, turn upside down, whatever you can think of, whatever you conceive. And I recently got reintroduced to Scratch and was just reminded of just kind of how incredible this this resource is. It's, it's very powerful, uh, all things considered, uh, very well done. It's a, it's a project that was created by MIT's Media Lab, uh, started all the way back in 2003. Its original uh, versions were a, a downloadable desktop program. But now the, the entire platform, the entire environment is, is online. So you go to scratch.mit.edu. Uh, there's tutorials, there's training, there, there's all sorts of resources there. But you can just start programming. I wanted to bring it up on the, the show today uh, because something has gotten myself and John into computers and technology and John, I, I want to ask you, what really, what really would you say your your interest or passion in technology and computers and, and dare I say it, security, where, where does that come from? So that's a great question. I'm going to bring you back to my tender age of eight. And some of the first memories I have with a computer were actually in third grade. And I recall that my third grade teacher had a computer in the back of the classroom. And most kids didn't use it every day. You know, it was as long before when computers were used constantly, before every kid had a Chromebook, before you emailed. But there was a computer in the back of that classroom. I don't recall the precise genesis of how this happened, but that's where I coded my first program. It was in basic. It, it was on an Apple II, and it took two numbers, and it multiplied them together and told you what those two numbers were multiplied together. And I'm sure that I did not figure out how to code that. Um, I do recall doing, you know, in basic, you, you do separate lines and you, you, you number those lines, 10, 20, 30, 40. And you can say, go back to the beginning, which is what it did anyway, to make a loop. But that, that was my first coding experience. Um, my father was always encouraging of computer use. We had, we had computers in my house growing up. I, we bought, I think not long after that, or maybe around the same time, possibly before, uh, we had a computer, an Apple IIe in the house. And I generally, I played computer games on it for the most part. I wasn't coding anything at home, but from very early age, I was involved with computers. It was, was just fostered at home. And I think that there's a there's a lot that I did that I've done with computers ever since, but a kind of driving component of my life has been my my capability and ability to use computers, and it's just it, it's made a huge impact that I don't think anyone ever planned on making to my life when I was that age, but uh, it was very it was very fundamental and again I can I remember that I remember showing the other kids in the classroom and then thinking that the computer program didn't work because nothing was happening when in reality it already it already multiplied together these two eight digit numbers that they just typed in randomly and it just it, it, it built from there you know i've always i've just always been in, interested in computers uh, there's a point in my life where i thought i wanted to be a computer engineer 
and I'm still not convinced not doing that was the right decision. Uh, it is the decision I made was to go in a separate route, but um, I still, obviously to this day, have a keen interest in in computers beyond just checking social media, beyond checking for the news. I, I enjoy the hardware. Uh, the software of it is, I like to have it very usable. I don't, I'm not so interested in the coding part of it, but I, I highly respect a lot of the things that go into coding. Um, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute about what Scratch, what role Scratch can play into that. But that's, it. I got started very early. But what about you, Jason? Anything you can share about that? Yeah, absolutely. But I want to just highlight that, you know, the two things I took away was one, it was, it started at a young age. And two, uh, a lot of it came from that encouragement that you got at home. Uh, and that's awesome. Uh, that's where a lot of Genesis stories start from. My interest in computers and technology really came not until college. <laughs> Sad to say, until I was 18 uh, and I was in college, uh, signed up for engineering on a whim. A uh, whole different story for another another time. And was introduced to this this idea of programming. I I just gravitated towards it because I, I really liked the logic and the sequence of what was going on. I really liked the idea of coding something that made sense from a linear perspective. You start at the beginning, you do your first step, you ask your user for the input, you do something with the input. Um, so on and so forth until you get to the end and then it's done and then you move on. You either rerun the program again or you move on to another program. And and that really built the momentum going forward in the rest of my college career. Uh, I was applying that same kind of sequential thought process to everything I was doing. Um, and I just, I, just, I just loved it. So... You know, back to scratch. So you you gave us a wonderful story about learning basic, which is a much more formal way of learning programming language. But scratch um, is more similar to what I would think of uh, as a puzzle, right? I mean, kids know how to put together puzzles, right? Different shapes, different pieces, different colors. Uh, it, it's it's much more entertaining and user friendly. I, it was definitely more entertaining. Let's, <laughs> let's just be 100% clear about that. Um, what, what I think was great about Scratch is that it doesn't distort what programming is. It, it does it in a colorful, entertaining format, but at its heart, it is programming. It, it's it's that, that exact logical, you know, kind of lockstep decision-making in a in a fun, easy to digest format, I think it's actually I think it's really incredible the way that they've put that together in a way that is just so digestible by by anybody. And it's not just by children; it's by anybody. It's really it's a really an incredible piece of work. The the reason I'm bringing this up right now too is because we have a lot of kids who are at home bored and looking for things to do, and I certainly will try to remember scratch and suggest it and and promote it to other people but it just seemed like a very fitting thing to talk about right now as parents and siblings and loved ones are sitting around looking at young people in that six seven eight nine ten all the way up to whatever age um, as an activity 
to do for a couple of hours. I I 100% agree, and I I agree almost solely for the one reason, is that Scratch does not need to be their gateway into being a software developer. That's that's not necessarily intent. The the intent to if they if you can help foster that sort of way of thinking about the world, that applies to to almost you you can you can use this approach, this software development approach in so many things in in the real world. You know, if you can help foster that that method of thinking, it's 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 just a tool, another tool, and it, and this is a great way I think to teach it. Absolutely. If you have time, please check out Scratch. Um, it's scratch.mit.edu. If if it's a little overwhelming at first, I promise you, give it 10, 15 minutes. It is worth a look. It is worth recommending or suggesting or even just sitting down with your nephew or niece and saying, hey, let's check this out together because – I really do feel strongly that, like Legos, it's an activity that somebody can absolutely get caught up in, and and you know play with, and and really find themselves not only enjoying their time but learning something kind of in the background as well. John, I think this is probably a good place to end the episode. Uh, I I do want to continue what we started last week, which is just trying to hold ourselves accountable, uh, maybe. Maybe try to make plans, whether we stick to them or not. I want to know, you know, what what is it that uh, you're going to be working on uh, between now and the next time we talk? So, great question. I feel like I I did cover it a little bit, but my my goal in the next week, I have a solution that I think will help uh, alleviate some of the home networking issues I've been experiencing. I'm going to try and simplify my setup and take the network attack solution and plug all those drives into my my primary desktop. I have the room for my for the hard drives in it. The RAM is faster in my home computer than it is in my NAS. The, the processor is more powerful. I think it's going to handle it just fine. And I think it's going to allow me to get a cut at that that cable optimization that really has to take place as well so that's my goal if i can get that done by this time next week i'll be in a good place so that's that's my goal what are you what are you working on this week i want to reinstall uh, my raspberry pi hole Uh, it's a awesome piece of freeware open source technology you can install the software on what's called a, a single board computer a raspberry pi and install it into your home network and essentially it blocks advertisements. Uh, I think I can get that done uh, with a little less effort than what you are taking on, but we will see and we will recap it next week when we talk on the router podcast. Thanks, John. Thank you, Jason. Looking forward to next week.